Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Well, hey, um, as we jump into this final week five of the, the life of Elisha, the, the kind of the subtitle here is Ridiculous Faith. Uh, this, this guy had ridiculous faith. Faith, And that was part of the reason why God used him in so many incredible ways with twice the number of miracles of that of Elijah, his predecessor, his mentor. Um, I want to talk a little bit today about spiritual blindness. Uh, You know, eyesight is important, right? I mean, it's a pretty awesome gift. Think for a moment with me uh, what you would go to, the story you would tell of the most stunning sight you've ever seen. Or what would be your top five, the most stunning sights you've ever seen? Where were you? What were you looking at? What captured your attention? What made your jaw drop? What was, what was stunning about the sight you were seeing? Now, now, guys that are married, if your first one is that moment when I turned and my bride was walking down the aisle, way to go. You know, you want to hang out on that one. That's number one. Nothing else rivals that, right? So I'm just trying to throw you a little help here, okay? Uh, Maybe you would say, you know what, uh, it was holding my son or my daughter for the very first time and looking into their eyes, right? I mean, nine months of preparation and, and years of dreaming and hoping and wanting, and, 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 and there's that moment, right? You can't even put words to it. I got to have a conversation uh, this week at the Leadership Summit with uh, one of the new dads in our church, and, and there's a lot of them. We've had like, there's been like 13 corona babies born in like two weeks. Like, it's just, boom, keeping hospitals in business, I guess, but... Um, yeah, so there's been a lot of new babies born in the life of our church family. I was talking to him, and this was their first, and, and he was just like, I, I was like, so how was it? You know, you're holding your daughter. What was that like? He's like, I can't describe it. Like, it was, it was so much more than I ever imagined, so much more incredible, and, and there's not even words to convey it, and so we were telling our stories, and, and I was able to talk about mine with my three girls, and, you know, first one was awesome, second one, eh, okay. No, they were all great, right? <laughs> They're all amazing, and they're all amazing in their own different way, and, and just the opportunity to watch their lives develop and watch them grow. Maybe for you, you'd say, you know, there's just, there's just this place I go. It's in the mountains, or it's, it's at the ocean, or, or, you know, maybe it's in your cubicle. I don't know, but maybe there's some stunning sight of some place, and you look out, and you see the city, or you see, the, the, you see nature, you see an ocean, and, and, and hopefully there's a palm tree in that view for you. I don't know. Maybe you're sitting there today, and you're single. And you're looking at somebody nearby and you're like, I think they're single and they're pretty stunning. I want to encourage you to have the guts today to talk to them when we're done. And maybe they don't have plans for lunch. And, and maybe today your blindness will give way to sight and your life can be forever changed. But eyesight's a pretty big deal. I mean, you only have two eyes. I remember my mom mentioning all the time when I was growing up, be careful, you only get two. You don't get any more. You, you ruin those two and, and you're in for trouble. Having good vision is important. I mean, it's a requirement for driving a vehicle, or at least it's supposed to be. You've got to see where you're going. You've got to see what might be out there that might be dangerous that you can avoid. Other times you need to see road signs, right? I remember when I first realized I needed to get glasses because I couldn't read road signs anymore. It's pretty important when you're taking a corner and you thought it just said that it was a corner and you didn't see the 25 that you needed to slow down for, you know? Eyesight is important. This applies no matter how old you are either, right? You need to see where you're going if you're riding a bike, if you're younger, or, or on a four-wheeler to see the lay of the ground, or if you're driving a go-kart. Um, you, ever, you ever 
ride go-karts like at a go-kart track and, and you want to go fast and you want to pass as many people as possible and maybe you have that competitive spirit, but yet there's always somebody in those eight golf carts that they're just out there for a leisurely ride, right? They're not interested in going fast and they actually think it's more exciting to not let anyone pass them. And so, you know, you've got these things that are throttled to kind of be equal. And so you go to the left to go around them and what do they do? They get in front of you and then you go to the right and then they get in front of you and then you're like, why is my wife annoying, right? No. Um, <laughs> So they just like to kind of irritate you, right? So you go left and they go left and you can't even get beside them because it's not like you have that much acceleration. Well, today, this story we're going to look at in the life of Elisha, there's an element of this. There's an element of eyesight and vision, and, but there's also an element here of kind of getting in the way, somebody kind of blocking somebody else, and it's of a divine nature. So uh, you can turn with me if you want, 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, or the, the text will be up here on the screen from the New Living Translation today, but we're going to dive in starting in verse 8. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. Now, this is kind of the setup for the rest of the story. The king of Aram would get together with his military leaders, and they would put together their plan of war. This is where we're going to go. This is the day we're going to do it. We're going to move these forces here. We're going to move these others over here to flank or go to this city. And so they would, they would get together their strategy of war. In a way, they're basically in the go-kart, and they're like, okay, let's go left, see if we can get around this way. And let's go right and see if we can get around this way. But immediately... Elisha, the man of God, the prophet in Israel, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near this place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So here's Elisha listening to the voice of God, speak instructions to him for the nation of Israel. He would go to the king of Israel who was putting together his own battle plan, and he would say, hey, King Aram is about to go right, so move the go-kart right, don't let him go there. And he's about to go left and move the go-kart left. So obviously, if King Aram's getting frustrated with this, right? So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. Time and again. This says it happened so many times they couldn't keep track of how many. It just kept happening over and over and over again. They would plan and Elisha would say, hey, go here, don't go here, move this group here because he's coming there. And all of a sudden, the prophet of God is getting involved in the battle of war. Everywhere the king of Aram tries to move, it's like somebody was listening in on his phone calls. It's like somebody was kind of like looking at his emails, right? Somebody, or maybe somebody on the inside was betraying him. It was almost as if somebody could read his mind or predict his thoughts and his strategy. Verse 11, the king of Aaron became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, I know it's one of you who's the traitor. Just come clean, be honest. This cannot be, this is happening too consistently to be a coincidence. There is a scheme here. Who's been informing the king of Israel of my plans? Immediately, all of them. It's not us. It's not us, my lord, the king. Like, we're frustrated with it too. We wish we could get around this guy, but he just, one of the officers replied, Elisha, it's him, the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Now, it's fascinating. The king of Aram's advisors basically tell the king, the opposing king of Israel, the reason we can't surprise the enemy is because Israel has Elisha. And Elisha is a holy man. He hears from the God of Israel. The God of Israel is incredibly powerful. So even secrets you speak in his bedroom, the God of Israel can communicate to Elisha. They're basically saying, we can't beat this guy. There is no way around this go-kart. We can't beat him. 
So what do they do? Do they just, you know, you can't beat them, join them. Do they just give up and walk away? No, they make it even worse. They make an even worse decision. Verse 13, go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. I think this is ridiculously hysterical. I mean, how often are you and I guilty of making dumb decisions like this? Basically, everything we've tried hasn't worked, so what do we do? We try the same thing one more time and, see, and then see if it works, right? I mean, already the, the king's been informed that the army of Aram, no matter where they move them, the Israelites are prepared for it. Elisha knows about it. God knows about it. So what are they going to try to do next? The king's like, what do we do? This is so frustrating. Every time we move them here, like they know it and they plan for it and they're ready to, they move them or they attack us. And, and so then we try to move them here and then they know about it again. What do we, and the king's like, I know, I know. Let's move, let, let's move the, the military here. That surely will work. And there was nobody in the room to say, dude, we've tried that 300 times. We're over 300. We're terrible at this. Like we need another plan. It's not going to go well. But of course, he's the king. So the report comes back. Hey, we found out where Elisha is. He's at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city of Dothan. I mean, for weeks, maybe months, the king of Aram has told his commanders, attack and attack this way. And every time they try to get position, every time they try to get the upper hand, every time they try to get ahead of them, all of a sudden they realize Israel was one step ahead of them every single time, and it's because of this guy, Elisha. So they get mad. They get frustrated. They get ticked off that everything they've tried so hard is not working. So what do they do? They try the exact same thing again. It's like they believe that they can hide something from God. How often do we do the same thing? It's like they think they can be one step ahead of God. They think that this is a human issue, even though they've identified Elisha hearing from God. They think they can outsmart God. They think they can get ahead of him. Like God won't know their true intentions and plans. Like God is just going to allow them to just take Elisha from him. How often do we convince ourselves that, that the things we're chasing, the things we're doing, that we can keep them from God seeing them? That even sometimes in our sin, we, we justify that maybe this thing that we want, that we're chasing, is actually what God wants for us as well. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God, so Elisha's servant, his assistant, what Elisha used to be to Elijah. We, we heard in the story last week about Gehazi, one of Elisha's uh, servants or assistants. So when the servant of Elisha got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what do we do now? They got us. They're one step ahead of us. I mean, look, we didn't even know they were coming here. The young man cries to Elisha. Elisha responds, says, don't be afraid. There are more on our side than on theirs. Now with human sight, with human vision, this statement doesn't make sense. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? They have a surrounded, they're surrounding the entire city. We can't even get word out to get reinforcements. But then Elisha prayed, oh Lord, open his eyes. And let him see. Now, I love this. I think it's a word for us now in the context of, of where we're at as a society, as a nation, as a people. How often are we trying to convince someone to see what we see and we're not just praying and saying, God, would you open their eyes? Because I can't. How often are we trying to force them into a corner? We're trying to, to come up with the greatest argument and the greatest social media post and something that we think is going to change the perspective. 
How much time do we spend there rather than just say, God, I just need to go on my knees and pray. Elisha says, Lord, you've got to open his eyes. I can't. Let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. I mean, how incredible would this have been for this young man who serves Elisha, who's witnessed miracles happen, things he can't explain, but things that are undeniable. Impossible things have become reality. That morning he wakes up, fear grips his heart because he thinks, is this where I die? The enemy has us surrounded. Every other step along the way, we've been one step ahead of them. But now all of a sudden, they have the upper hand. That's what it looks like from human sight. And when that spirit of fear is evident, Elisha says, don't be afraid. Where's your trust? Where's your trust? Is it in what you can see? Is it in what you can measure? Is it in your own opinion? Or is it in someone so much bigger? Open his eyes to see what's really there. There are far more with us than against us. And this man looks up and he can see the angel army of fire God has sent. Can you imagine that sensation? The text doesn't say it. But there are so many other places in the Bible that when someone encounters an angel, the first thing they, they don't go, Aw, you're so cute. Oh, Gucci, Gucci, goo, look at you in your little diaper and your bow and arrow, right? That's not what they say. When someone sees an angel, they don't even have a second to say anything until the angel says, hey, don't freak out. I'm here for a good reason. Don't be afraid. That's the first thing out of the mouths of angels. Why? Because if you see an angel, you're freaking out and you're afraid. You're intimidated. You're terrified. This is unlike anything you've ever imagined. This young man is scared when he saw the army of Aram. I can only imagine how much more unsettling it would have been to see the, the angel army of fire surrounding them. As the Aramean army advanced towards Elisha, Elisha prayed a different prayer. It's the reverse. Oh Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Now the word here translated blindness doesn't so much mean that now all of a sudden they can't see anything. It's dark and they're wandering around bumping into each other. That's not really what it means. It's more the idea of an illusion. There's an illusion of veil over their eyes, preventing them from seeing what it is they're trying to see, what it is they're trying to do. It's a veil preventing them from accomplishing the mission that they're actually on. And then the next verse of the Bible, get this, the next verse of the Bible is where God proves that Jedis are real, okay? Seriously, where's my Star Wars people, right? You want definitive evidence that Jedis are real, here it is. 2 Kings chapter 6, this is the power of God's Spirit at work within us to do things greater than even Jesus did. We've been talking about Elisha, the only, he's the most powerful, most, most, does the most miracles of anybody other than Jesus. And Jesus himself says, you'll do things greater than even me. So what can the power of God do within us? This, verse 19, then Elisha went out. So they're advancing towards Elisha. Think about, I mean, this is gutsy. The, the entire army surrounding him, they're moving towards him. Does he have like some big entourage of, you know, highly trained soldiers? No, he's walking out towards them. He's believing this prayer that he's offered to God, Lord, make them blind, that God has done it. And he's putting his life on the line. And so Elisha went out and told them, you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. And I will take you to the man you're looking for. I don't know about you, but this is Obi-Wan in Star Wars A New Hope when they're in the speeder with Luke, R2-D2, C-3PO. There, there they are. They're like, hey, do these droids belong to you? And what does he say? He says, uh, you're, these are not the droids you're looking for. They, they're fine. They can pass. Uh, yeah, let them go. Let them go. Right? This is like a Jedi mind trick. This is amazing. He's like, 
you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. The capital city of Israel at this time. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And, and the capital city in Judah was Jerusalem and Israel is Samaria. He's leading them to the king of Israel. The entire focused army that's trying to get Elisha. So that Aram can finally get an upper hand on Israel. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O oh Lord... Now open their eyes and let them see. Now I have to believe, we don't know Elisha's personality, but there's got to be a grin across your face, right? Like, it, it, just the human side of it. It's like, okay, God, open their eyes. I want to see this. What, how are they going to respond, right? And so, so the Lord opened their eyes. Oh, crap, right? I mean, that's what happens here. Oh, what are, where are we? What happened? Where, this is not where we were going, right? They discovered they're in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Do we attack? And Elisha replies, Of course not. Do we kill prisoners of war? You know, there's often a statement made that in the Old Testament, there's so much more brutality and killing. And, and some try, try to say that, you know, I just, I struggled with the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. They just, they're just so, so different from one another. But see, there's so much more subtlety in the Old Testament that, that oftentimes that's a statement made in ignorance. We don't really understand the reasoning behind what God does, what he ordains and what he allows in the Old Testament. And we don't really see the heart of God at work and what he's doing. We don't have time to get into this today, but, but please, if you've carried that thought, I, I just have to tell you, it's not biblically accurate. It's not. Here's an illustration where there's enemy prisoners of war, and they're captured. They wanted to kill Elisha. They wanted to, to wipe out the Hebrew people, and the prophet of God says, no, you don't kill them. That's not who we are. That's not what God wants in this. And he gives a different command. He says, instead, give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. What? A feast? And then he just lets them go? He lets them leave? He shows them mercy. Mercy is, is not holding them responsible for, for the reason they were there and what they wanted to do to the man of God. The, Elisha, the king, showed them grace. Grace is, is, is getting what we could never earn or deserve which was forgiveness for their actions. He sets them free of the consequence of their sins. What was the result of this? Do you see, do you see the foreshadowing of Jesus in Elisha? And how does the Aramean army respond? The very next verse, after that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. It's kind of like, man, when you show me the kind of grace I don't deserve, when I am completely at your disposal for you to do whatever you want, and you show me mercy? I mean, aside from the fact that I ain't never messing with you and your God again, because that was creepy weird. But aside from that, I'm cool with you now. I'm cool. Everything I thought was a big deal that I was trying to, that was causing the conflict, it's not a conflict anymore. Now, I think in this moment in Elisha's life, there's two different experiences or perspectives on blindness. Spiritual blindness. The first that's noticeable is that of the Aramean army, right? The blindness of those who are far from God. They think God and, and his people are their enemies. And they think if they can just get and eliminate Elisha, all their problems will be over. How often do we do the same thing? How often does our world do the same thing? If we can just stop this, then all the problems are over. And so when the Arameans go to attack, all of a sudden, they don't even realize 
there's an illusion, there's a physical blind deficiency, and they can't see clearly, and they don't even know that what they think they're seeing isn't reality. It's a picture of spiritual blindness. They think they can see, but they really can't. They're seeing a veil. They're, they're seeing things not as they are. That's how the whole life of someone far from God is. And do you remember when you were far from God? Maybe it was a long time ago and you have to go back to that moment. You thought you had things figured out. You thought you had what you wanted. You thought you were chasing what would satisfy you until all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, well, why doesn't this satisfy anymore? Used to. And then you're confused. And what you thought you saw, what you thought you'd get, you're not getting and you don't see anymore. And now it's turned out to be a disappointment at, be at best or heartbreaking and life-shattering at worst. In that state of physical blindness, the whole Aramean army, they're easily deceived. And they just blindly follow a guy that looks to be their friend. But in reality, it's their enemy, the one they've been sent to attack. And what does he do? He walks them right into Israel's cap capital and puts them in a completely indefensible, vulnerable state by which the enemy can do whatever they want to them. And they have nothing to do to stop it. Now, this is how our God works every single day. That there are those that think they found what they want till all of a sudden they realize they're trapped by it. They thought this is what they, they were chasing, but so often a person far off from God, not in relationship yet with God, doesn't recognize that ultimately who they're looking for is a savior. Elisha is a foreshadowing image of Jesus, and he leads them to a position of complete vulnerability, and then he does something nobody is expecting, not even the king of Israel. Should I kill them now? Should I kill them? He throws a feast, and he sets them free. When they finally snapped out of their blindness, they expected an onslaught of judgment, and they're given grace. They thought the solution to their problem was taking out the prophet of God and winning the battle until they experienced grace they didn't deserve. And what did they discover? That a better plan was to move forward transformed by that grace to where their enemies are no longer enemies, but their friends. Is there something in your life that you're being blind to? Something you really, really want? Bad? Maybe you even think it's good for you. Maybe you even think it's what you've always dreamt of. But meanwhile, God is wanting to open your eyes to see how disastrous this will be. And your heavenly father isn't wanting to punish you for it. He wants his grace to transform you so you can see, you're my child. I, I want to save you, not only from your sin, but I want to save you from the disaster that you're walking into. Trust me. There's another moment of blindness we see in this historic story. Do you remember it? It was earlier on. It was the moment when Elisha's servant, a believer was blind to God's protection of him and his power at work for him. The blindness of a child of God. Elisha's servant was terrified because he saw what the odds were. He saw the army against him. And he was blind to the presence of God who was fighting for him. And he, real, he didn't realize at that moment that his assessment of the situation was completely in error. Why is he afraid when he sees another army? Because he's thinking every other time we've been ahead of the enemy. Now it's obvious we're surrounded, that the enemy is ahead of us, that they've won up to God. But he didn't see what was really going on. He didn't see how God had actually allowed them to come here to do a greater work. He thought God had abandoned them. We're surrounded. We're abandoned. We're going to die. There's no hope. God doesn't care about us. Do you know the core essence of sin? 
For, for all of us, believer, unbeliever, the core essence of sin for everybody, it isn't the thing we do, it isn't the thing we want, it isn't our selfishness. The core essence of sin is a lack of faith that God is good enough in Jesus, that God is better. The core essence of sin is we don't believe God. We believe ourselves. We believe our cravings. We believe our desires. We don't believe Jesus. When we believe God, sin is further from our heart. When we believe ourselves and we doubt God, that's where we get anxious. That's where we crave things that are bad for us. That's where we get caught up in addiction. That's where we create messes for ourselves. Our sin and foolishness is right up in front of our face when we're distant from God, when we're doubting God, when we're believing ourselves. In Acts 16, Jesus is so clear about this, so clear about our struggle with sin. It's here that the disciples are kind of there in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane or just before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is teaching them and he's preparing them. He, he's telling them, I'm about to be taken. I'm about to die. I'm going to, be di- I'm going to die for the sins of the world. They can't wrap their minds around that, that he's going to Calvary, that he's going to be crucified. And then he says, I'm leaving and this is a good thing. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit which is far better than me staying with you because the Spirit is going to teach you about sin, the essence of sin, that it's all about the fact that you don't believe me. Martin Luther, the historic reformer for the church, said this. He said, every sin begins with an evil heart of unbelief. Every sinful action begins with an evil heart of unbelief. I don't trust you, God. I don't believe you. I believe me. The reason any of us reject God's ways and pursue our own paths is we don't think God is infinitely good or trustworthy, or better. We don't trust him. We don't believe that his way is better. And the reason that we're afraid or worried about the things in our world, the reason you might be afraid or worried about the things in your life right now is you don't believe God's promises extend to you. You don't believe he's good. You don't believe he's always fighting for us. You don't believe he'll never leave you or forsake you. You don't believe that he is working all things together for good, even the pains you experience. The reason we're afraid So we don't believe God has surrounded us with an army of angels and chariots of fire. Yeah, I'm sure God is surrounded like the super Christians with angel armies, but but probably not me. That's unbelief. That's you saying, yeah, God probably surrounds them with angel armies, but, but I'm nobody special. Therefore, you don't believe what God says in his word about every single one of his children and how precious they are to him, precious enough that he would lay his life down on the cross for you. There's one word for that. It's called unbelief. It's doubting the words of Jesus, doubting the word of God. And believers in Jesus are just as guilty of unbelief as not yet believers of Jesus. And oftentimes our unbelief is spotted in the easiest of ways when we get worried, when we get afraid, and when we get mad. Somebody needs to write those three things down because the Holy Spirit wants you to know this is you. Your unbelief is revealed oftentimes in in your worry, in your anger, and in your fear. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness? They were not yet in the promised land. They were angry about the circumstance they were in. They were worried about where this was going. They were mad that when they were at least slaves in Egypt, at least they had a little more creative menu they got to eat. They're not stuck with this manna all the time. And their unbelief made them miserable. Ultimately, their unbelief cost them the blessing of getting to experience the life that was free in the promised land. They all had to die. Remember Jesus' disciples like Peter? When Jesus would say, I'm, 
I'm going to die. I'm going to let them take me. I'm going to lay my life down. Nobody, nobody takes it from me. I lay it down. Peter would get angry and say, I'm not going to let that happen. Over my dead body, is anybody going to grab you? Over my dead body, is anybody going to hurt you? I'm not going to let that happen. Because Peter's unbelief was that his plan was better than God's. That can't be the way it goes. I don't like that. I don't believe that's the best plan. My plan is better, and I'll make sure my plan works. There's so many more illustrations in the Bible of unbelief, but, but let's talk about now. How are you doing right now in light of everything playing out in our world over the last year and a half? If you're worrying like crazy right now, if you are consumed with worry, you can't believe that God has actually been in control during COVID. You believe he's out of control. You believe that he's not good. If you're overwhelmed with a spirit of fear, you can't believe that God has a plan for you. And you're constantly saying, well, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? And you're not believing God for the best that can happen. If you're flat out angry and mad at everything that's playing out, you really can't believe God is with you. You have to believe it's all up to me. I have to change this. I've got to get mad. I've got to push back. I can't trust God with the outcome. But you're mad because it seems like God's abandoned you and the world has lost its mind. And God is absent behind the wheel, so you've got to take it from him. Our unbelief in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do is revealed by our reactions. Just like the servant of Elisha, he wakes up and what? He's immediately afraid. He's worried. What do we do now, Elisha? He's scared. And until we want our eyes opened more desperately than one our way, to truly live in the light of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do, only then the unbelief will drive our worry, fear, and anger deeper and deeper and deeper inside of us. And more and more will be taken from us that God wants to save us from experiencing the loss of. It's so interesting that this story, again, is a story of how God achieves the victory completely. Nobody else can take credit for it. I want to invite the worship team back up. They're going to close us with a song of worship. Once the servant of Elisha's eyes are open to see what God was accomplishing that no one else could see, all of a sudden, there's peace and joy. Why? Because he's seeing what's really going on. Because he was reminded, you know what? You said this, Elijah. I wasn't believing you. There are more fighting for us than any stacked against us by the enemy of God. So then we can, when, in light of that, when, when we open our eyes to, to remember what's really going on that we can't see in our human sight, but, but God's spiritual sight can remove the blindness, then we can start to claim the promises of Scripture. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear, for I'm with you always. I'm your God. You're my people. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. We can claim the promises of Scripture that you don't have to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. I, I got that. Just trust it in my hands. You could claim the promises of Scripture. Hey, you know what? Today, in light of everything that's happened that I'm angry and mad about, you know what? I'm not going to let the sun go down on my anger because anger is a foothold of the enemy of God to wrap me up in Him and not in the love, the amazing love of my King. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? And allow the Holy Spirit to just kind of do a little bit of a work in your soul. 
Is he convicting you of worry? Is he convicting you of fear? Is he convicting you of anger? Maybe it has nothing to do with COVID. I've kind of started there as kind of a summary that that all of us can kind of mutually understand. Maybe it's something, it's, it's more personal than that. It's under your own roof. And you're worried about something. You're afraid about something. You're mad about something. And and maybe if you were to sit down with me right up front after this worship gathering and you told me your whole story in 30 minutes, I might say you have every right to be mad. I understand why you're worried. I understand why you're afraid. It doesn't mean that those emotions aren't valid. But what the God of the universe and your Savior want to do is not only does He want to save you from your sin through faith in Jesus Christ, He wants to save you from a life marked with brokenness because you live in prisoner to those things. In fact, maybe God has even allowed those things so that your trust in Him can rise and your faith can increase and your unbelief in Him can finally be exposed in the light of of his love. So Lord Jesus, as the worship team leads us, would your spirit speak to each and every heart, both here in this room, but also to everybody that's listening in and leaning in in the, in the situation and whatever their life looks like right now. And may the name of Jesus be brought glory by the work you want to do in us in these next few moments. Thank you. 
song, remember that the symbol of the cross is the symbol that it is not the hostility of God that is chasing after us. It is the goodness of God, His grace and His mercy.